Remain standing, and we'll turn this morning to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah 52, we'll read the whole chapter together, and uh, we're taking a break from the Gospel of John this morning, because many people are thinking about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ at this time of year. So why not have a sermon about it? Isaiah 52, in verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust, arise, sit down, O Jerusalem, loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion, for thus says the Lord. You have sold yourselves for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there. The Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now, therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing. Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord, and my name is blasphemed continually every day. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With their voices they shall sing together, for they shall see eye to eye. When the Lord brings back Zion, break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare His holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and in all the earth, all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, be clean. You who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go without haste or go out with haste, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your guard. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see and what they had not heard they shall consider. So the reading of God's word, let us pray again. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray that your spirit would bless the reading and preaching of this word, which is yours, that you would instruct us in the way everlasting and lead our hearts back home to you, for we often stray from the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So recently I was asked, what is your favorite Christmas hymn? And I had to think about that. Um, And so eventually one came to my mind, and it is, O come, O come, Emmanuel. 
And uh, that hymn actually dates back to the 13th century. And it comes from an 8th century Christian poem. And it was used in the Vespers of the early church. That refers to the evening services of the ancient and early Christian church. It was used as a call and response. And one of the reasons it's my favorite hymn is Christian hymn or Christmas hymn, if I could say that correctly. One of my reasons for that is because it is so rich in biblical and historical theology. I mean, the opening line just reaches out and plucks the strings of my heart. It says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. And so the theme of exile and Israel's deliverance is captured not only in that hymn, but also in our text, Isaiah 52. And what you may not know is that what is spoken of in that old Christian hymn and in Isaiah 52 is not so much the deliverance of God's people from the Babylonians and their return to Jerusalem. It is about that. But ultimately, it is speaking about a spiritual deliverance. It's not simply about the return to the physical Holy Land, Jerusalem. And so this morning, as we look at Isaiah 52, I want us to see that what is promised here is a new and glorious exodus. And that their deliverance, Israel's deliverance from exile, is actually our deliverance today. That's what we need to see. So we'll have three main headings for this morning. The first one is that the Lord here promises a new exodus. I think it's clear that from a cursory reading of the passage, this is evident. I mean, consider the language. It harkens back. It echoes the language of the first exodus. If you have a Bible there in chapter 52 in verse 1, verse 2, he says, Awake, awake. Tells them to get up. He's calling them to action. Arise from your slumber. In chapter 52 and verse 1, he tells them to get dressed. Put on your beautiful garments. As one translation puts it and gets it wrong, it says put on your Sunday best. Well, the Sabbath back then was Saturday. It's talking about holy garments, the garments probably of the Levitical priesthood. And so God is telling his people, you're going to go back to the land. You're going to worship me again in the way that you used to worship. And then he says in verse two, leave your place of bondage. And so this is uh, giving them hope uh, of freedom from tyranny, from captivity and the oppression In verse 4, he reminds them of the Egyptian and then also the Assyrian captivities that Israel had experienced before the Babylonian captivity, which is the context in Isaiah, also Daniel and some of the other books of the Bible. And in verse 5, there's uh, this phrase there. It's kind of hard to understand, even in the original. It says something like, what to me here? There in verse 5, it says, now, therefore, what have I here? And uh, the idea is, what must I do? Well, God is saying, I must save them. I must bring salvation 
to them. I must deliver them. And so in verse 11, he says, depart again, depart, depart. There's, there's this urgency in one sense. And then in verse 12, it says there, for you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. Why? Why does he say that? Well, this is an indication that while he is talking about their exodus from captivity, it is going to be different than the first exodus. The first exodus wasn't haste. It was hurried. Some would say even disorganized, but organized by God. But this one, he notes there in verse 12, he says, for the Lord will go before you. They're going to have the same protection by God. And the the God of Israel will be your rear guard. And you see, when God's people would actually experience what is promised here, uh, the king... And that land who had conquered the Babylonians would actually allow God's people to go back to their home in Jerusalem. And so then the promise is a return, a promise of God for them to return back to Jerusalem, the land of peace, the holy land. And so like Adam before these Israelites here, like Adam back long ago at the beginning, Because of their disobedience, they, like Adam, they were banished or exiled. Adam was exiled, put out of paradise. Israel was exiled and banished from the Holy Land, taken into captivity. And this happened, by the way, in 605 B.C. when the Babylonians, under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar, plundered and destroyed Jerusalem. And took God's people from Judah captive back to Babylonia. And Daniel in the first chapter talks about that. And so as we'll see that what is promised here has greater meaning though. Than being freed from captivity in Babylon. Only to return to Jerusalem. Now this passage answers a question which I will ask. How will this happen? Well, it's going to happen by means of the same power as the first exodus. Okay, and so that then leads us to the second point. The first thing we see here is that the Lord promises a new exodus. And then second, this exodus will be accomplished by the arm of the Lord. Okay, that tells us who will accomplish it, but also how by the arm of the Lord. Of the Lord. It's going to happen by the Lord's own power. It's not going to be because of Israel's strength that she would muster up all of this uh, savvy political and uh, type of warfare power. No, it's going to be God. It's going to be evident. In fact, God is commanding them to do something they could not do. That's seen here as well in verse 2. He says, Shake yourself from the dust, rise. Sit down, loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Well, if that were possible, wouldn't they have already done that? And so in verse two, we learn that in verse seven, you'll note there it will be by God's own power. This is the herald speaking here. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims 
salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And so the image here is of that herald who would bring the news in the day. This is before electricity, TV, Internet, radio, satellite TV. The herald would have news to spread throughout the land and he would do it on foot. He would run, actually. And in times of peace, when the war had ceased, he would often go out proclaiming peace, peace. The victory is ours. The war is over. And here he does this and he is saying to Zion, God's people, your God reigns. And this is the news that's coming out. God is sovereign over the nations and he rules over the kings of the earth. He holds them in his hand and like the river, Proverbs says, directs them to wherever he would have them to go. In verse 8, we see that it is the Lord who brings back Zion. At the very end, it says, when the Lord brings back Zion. Again, this is going to be accomplished by God, not his people. If you look there in verse 10, it says, the Lord has made bare his holy arm. In the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. You know, there's that rolling up of the sleeve. And in biblical times, this was often a picture given for time of warfare. You know, in the the Old Testament especially, they had their loins. They had the men men had these these baggy, what looked like skirts, but they weren't women's clothing. Okay, children, but they would roll up and gird up their loins so that they might run. And then here the picture is that the arm of the Lord will be Reveal. He is going to accomplish this. And this actually goes back to the first Exodus because in Exodus chapter 6, God told Moses to say this to Israel. In verse 6 of Exodus 6, God's speaking to Moses says, Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And with great judgments. And so in God's providence, by His orchestration of events, by, as we say, governing all His creatures and all their actions, He will accomplish what is spoken of here. And so that's how He's going to do it. We're also told as to why. He's going to do it for His own glory. That's there in verse 6. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. You know, God doesn't have a God complex because he is God. He must have the glory. In fact, in Isaiah 42 and verse 8 and Isaiah 48, 11, he's already said that the glory must go to him. He will share his glory with no one. And so God has created all things for his own glory. And that's why we exist to give him the credit and to magnify and lift up and exalt his holy name. And the result of this exodus will result in his glorification. And so the exodus then that is described here is of a different, a even dramatic nature than the first. It is true that God accomplished the first, there's no doubt. But as we'll see, this is very, very different. Well, that leads us to the last thing here. And that is that the arm of the Lord 
is the Lord Jesus Christ. So God promises an exodus. This exodus will be performed by the arm of the Lord. And the arm of the Lord is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, in verse 7, it talks about that herald. And what is he proclaiming and preaching? Peace. He's proclaiming peace. Your captivity is over. And remember in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7, there's this title given to the one who is promised of the seed of David to sit on David's throne. He is called the prince of what? Peace. He is the one who comes and accomplishes peace first between God and man and then man and man. And as the scripture says, it is Christ who justifies us. Romans 5.1 says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 10, it mentions again, it talks about that holy arm. And again, that refers to God's strength and His might, His power. In Isaiah 9.6, that one promised has another title, Mighty God. Jesus, the God-man, God incarnate, is the one who would secure and accomplish the exodus that is ultimately spoken about here in our text. If you look at the next chapter, Isaiah 53 and verse 1, it says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then it talks about the arm of the Lord. The Lord Jesus. And it's clear for any Christian, at least, about whom Isaiah 53 speaks. The suffering servant. And Isaiah 52, by the way, is one of those servant songs in Isaiah. And so when we are identifying the servant, as it says there in Isaiah 52, 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. Think about what Isaiah has already said about this servant. Isaiah 42, this servant is the one who is upheld by God, who is chosen by God, whose spirit is upon him, who a bruised reed he will not break, nor a smoking flax he will not quench. Talking about the gentle nature of our Lord Jesus, who would come and who has come. In Isaiah 49, he's called the, the Redeemer of Israel, the Holy One of Israel. He's the only one holy in Israel since Adam and since the fall. He's the only one to come out of Israel who truly is holy. And so he is the Holy One. In Isaiah 50, he is the one who gives his back to those who would strike him, his cheeks to those who would pluck out his beard, and his face to those who would disgrace him and spit upon his face. That was fulfilled at the time of our Lord's suffering at the cross and just before. In our text, in Isaiah 52, again, he is the one in verse 13 who will deal prudently, who will be worshipped. And of course, as it says at the end of Isaiah 52, it was him whose appearance would be marred more than any man. Meaning his sufferings would be greater than any man had ever experienced on this earth. Our Lord was beaten. 
spat upon, crowned with a crown of thorns, crucified. And on top of that, he suffered the wrath of God in our place. Isaiah 53, he's the one, the servant is the one who is despised by men. He's the one rejected by men, it says there. He bears our griefs and our sorrows. He's stricken and smitten by God. He is afflicted. He is wounded for our transgressions as God's people. It says the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. For the transgression of my people, God says, was he stricken. He shall justify many. He was numbered with the transgressors. And so he stood in the place of sinners to receive the the wrath of God. The just payment penalty for our sins. So the Apostle Paul will pick up on this in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he talks about our justification and the forgiveness that we receive. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God, God in Him that is through Him. So God placed our guilt on Jesus. He took care of the wrath and the payment that we could never pay. And the wrath that we deserved. But also we get the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God in the gospel, when we put our faith in Jesus, he wipes our slate, our bad record clean, and he gives to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Perfection, perfect obedience that we could never accomplish. And so what is the point then? The point is that the prophecy mentioned here was only partially fulfilled in 537 when Israel returned to earthly Jerusalem. And that it was ultimately fulfilled in A.D. 33 when Christ suffered at the cross of Calvary on our behalf. The point is that all humanity has been banished into exile, into captivity, out of God's favorable presence with Adam. Just as Adam was expelled from the garden, so too were we, because as Romans 5 says, what Adam did, we did. We sinned in him. He is our representative. But, through Jesus Christ, men now have the opportunity to begin their return from exile, a bondage to sin, misery in this life, in this world, and to dwell with God forever. You know, you think about it, we live under a curse, don't we? In this world, in this life. Now, Christians have been delivered, as I've already said, we've been delivered from the curse and the curse of the law. But we still feel the weight and the effects of sin because we live in a fallen world. We have, as Paul points out in Romans 7, remaining sin so that he cries out, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he praises God that it was through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that that will happen. Uh, Yesterday, I was talking with my sister and we were just talking about life and how, you know, there are expectations at this time of the year and uh, things happen, it seems, financially at this time of the year. She was telling me some of the things that she had had to pay for recently. <clears throat> and I was like, yeah, my tie, I needed new tires. And then, you know, <clears throat> I had to spend the week digging in my yard. And, 
all these unforeseen expenses. But the reality is we live in a fallen world and that's why this happens. And so that's why Ecclesiastes was written to redirect our minds to heaven. Because life under the sun is futility. If you live in this world, if you try to make sense of this life without divine heavenly revelation, the word of God, it will seem pointless. It will seem futile because everything breaks, every, all the metal rusts, everything goes back into the ground, including our own bodies. And yet, we're told here of this great salvation that the Lord Jesus has accomplished. And the reason he has accomplished it is to set us free, to break our shackles to sin, to have a true spiritual and one day physical exodus. This exodus about which Isaiah speaks is fulfilled when lost, exiled sinners return to God through Jesus Christ. Souls return to God, souls enslaved to sin, as Romans 6, 6 put, puts it, knowing this, that our old man, the Christian, our old man was crucified with him, with Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Souls in bondage, as Titus 3, 3 puts it, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That is slavery to sin. And so just as Israel was redeemed without money, so too are we. The passage has already said that. In Isaiah 55, I think it is, he tells people to come and come and buy and purchase without money. Milk and honey. And you see, we, as God's people, were redeemed not with corruptible things, as 1 Peter puts it, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so Paul, he would speak to those Christians at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians, Corinth, where there was unmentionable sexual perversion, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, sodomy, all kinds of things. And he mentions their idolatry. And remember, this is why exile or while Israel was exiled, it was for their idolatry. And idolatry is of a spiritual nature. It is bondage to our idols, the idols of our own heart. But in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, of which were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. This is why Jesus came. So that we might have our own true and spiritual exodus from a life of idolatry and rebellion against God. And so as we think about that, let me make some application. Just five, five words of, of application. First word is worship. Just as Israel had cause to sing, to rejoice and praise God in this passage for their exodus, so too do we 
as Christians. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, Peter is making that point. He tells the Christian church, he, he calls them by the titles of the Old Testament, Old Testament Israel. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. And he says you've been saved. And, and the reason is that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I like what J.I. Packer said. God's glory showing requires glory giving. That's why God has saved us. For our benefit, yes, because he loved us and continues to love us, yes. But ultimately, for his own glory, that he might receive praise and be magnified even now in this earth. That's where that word worship comes from. Worthy ship. God is worthy to receive our praise. That is why with the reformers we cry out solely Deo Gloria. May God alone receive all of the glory for what he has done. And so that old hymn says, Jesus, our day spring from on high, cheers us by drawing nigh. He dispersed the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. He has released us from our captivity, the shackles of our sin, our hopeless and misery in this life. And for that reason, we worship and praise the triune God. Second is faithfulness. I mean, when you think about what is promised here and the reality that Jesus came and that he took upon human flesh, that he lived the perfect life, that he suffered and died in our place, was raised again, now sits at God's right hand. Has accomplished our redemption. God is faithful. He's faithful to his promises. And think about it in Psalm 137, God's people, Israel, after they've been taken captive into Babylon, it says they, they hung their harps by the river because they couldn't praise him in the temple anymore. They cried out. And then they prayed to God, Remember, remember the sons of Eden or Edom. And they were saying, Lord, remember what happened in Jerusalem, how our enemies, your enemies, your enemies came and they took us. They leveled the city. They were praying to get back, to get back so that they might worship God. And he answered their prayer and he answered their prayer ultimately by sending the Lord Jesus Christ. And that tells us that while physical pain and suffering is real and something terrible and a result of the fall. It tells us that our spiritual condition condition is important, even perhaps of greater significance than that. And so God, he answers our prayers when we pray through the name of Christ. And he doesn't always answer our prayers in the way that we might deem best, but he always answers them in the way that gives him the most glory and in the way that is most best for his people. Third word is holiness. As we've seen, we've been freed from the power of sin, the guilt of sin, one day the presence of sin. And God has done this that we might have a life of obedience to Him. And that's in our text as well. They're told to put on their holy clothing. God is concerned about His reputation, their repentance. 
And even in Ezekiel 36, God will promise to give a new heart to his people. A heart that beats after his will in heaven. And it says in that passage in Ezekiel, speaking to his people in exile, I will cause you to walk in my ways. I will put my spirit within you. And to those Corinthians at Corinth who had become Christians, whom Christ had redeemed and applied that work to them, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. Beloved, that's us. Glorify God in light of the blood of Christ being shed for you, being delivered from the power and shackles of sin. Now, therefore, glorify God. How? Obeying God with your body, with your feet, where you go, with your fingers, what you do, your tongue, what you say, with your heart and mind, what you think. And also another word is anticipation. In light of God's faithfulness here, we can rest assured that just as Jesus came the first time, as God has promised, so too will He come a second time, just as He has promised. You know, in Revelation, there are God's people in heaven, and they're waiting for God to act on earth. And at the end of Revelation, there's God's people praying, come, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Whatever your eschatological view is of things to come, you should be praying that prayer too. I pray it more and more. I think the older I get and the more craziness that surrounds me, the more I pray that prayer. Because if Jesus comes, or I should say when He comes, He will come in His own timing and make all things right. And it will be the perfect time. But I want Him to come. I want Him to come soon. And so we anticipate what is promised in Scripture because God is faithful. And then the last thing here is witness. And I refer to our witness. But in verse 6, He says, Therefore my people shall know my name. Behold, I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. God is concerned about his own glory. His glory brought about through the love and obedience of his own people, but also as a testimony to the nations. Don't we have an opportunity this time of year as Christians? I mean, yeah, there's the whole transformation of what is happening in our nation. Socialism, softened totalitarianism, Marxism, all of this, which crowds out and wants to erase any bit of Christian history we might have. It is an opportunity to combat that and correct it, but really the only true way to combat that is through the gospel, through hearts that are transformed miraculously by God through the gospel of His Son. And so we have this opportunity. Well, what's Christmas all about? You know, is it about gifts? Is it about going into debt? Is it about giving so I can get? No, it's about the incarnation. But that's not it. The incarnation was a means unto His crucifixion. And so we can talk about why that is necessary and give God glory and be a witness for our Lord at this time. 
And if you're here this morning and you've never obeyed the call to awake, to loose your chains, and you will never know the freedom and joy and peace that only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our message. God can and will take away your guilt. He will wash away all of your filth once you repent and put your faith in His servant, the Redeemer of Israel, His Holy One, the arm of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Son. We thank You for our Lord Jesus. Lord, in spite of our stubbornness, our deadness, our resistance, You took out our cold, stony hearts. You gave us hearts of flesh. You gave us ears to hear, eyes to see, and to believe and trust in and follow the Lord Jesus. We pray that we would be the light of the world that we've called to be, been called to be. We pray that we would be your witnesses and sing your praises and find our true joy and peace in the Prince of Peace himself, our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.